Section 13 of The House Behind the Cedars. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The House Behind the Cedars by Charles W. Chestnut. Section 13. An Injudicious Payment. When Judge Straight's visitors had departed, he took up the papers which had been laid loosely on the table as they were taken out of Tryon's breast pocket, and commenced their perusal. There was a note for five hundred dollars, many years overdue, but not yet outlawed by lapse of time, a contract covering the transaction out of which the note had grown, and several letters and copies of letters modifying the terms of the contract. The judge had glanced over most of the papers, and was getting well into the merits of the case, when he unfolded a letter which read as follows. My dearest George, I am going away for about a week, to visit the bedside of an old friend who is very ill, and may not live. Do not be alarmed about me, for I shall very likely be back by the time you are. Yours lovingly, Rowena Warwick the judge was unable to connect this letter with the transaction which formed the subject of his examination. Age had dimmed his perception somewhat, and it was not until he had finished the letter, and read it over again, and noted the signature at the bottom a second time, that he perceived that the writing was in a woman's hand, that the ink was comparatively fresh, and that the letter was dated only a couple of days before. While he still held the sheet in his hand, it dawned upon him slowly that he held also one of the links in a chain of possible tragedy which he himself, he became uncomfortably aware, had had a hand in forging. It is the Walden woman's daughter, as sure as fate. Her name is Rena. Her brother goes by the name of Warwick. She has come to visit her sick mother. My young client, Green's relation, is her lover, is engaged to marry her is in town and is likely to meet her the judge was so absorbed in the situation thus suggested that he laid the papers down and pondered for a moment the curious problem involved he was quite aware that two races had not dwelt together side by side for nearly three hundred years without mingling their blood in greater or less degree he was old enough and had seen curious things enough to know that in this mingling the current had not always flowed in one direction certain old decisions with which he was familiar, old scandals that had crept along obscure channels, old facts that had come to the knowledge of an old practitioner who held in the hollow of his hand the honor of more than one family, made him know that there was dark blood among the white people. Not a great deal, and that very much diluted, and, so long as it was sedulously concealed or vigorously denied, or lost in the mists of tradition, or ascribed to a foreign or an aboriginal strain, having no perceptible effect upon the racial type. Such people were, for the most part, merely on the ragged edge of the white world, seldom rising above the level of overseers, or slave-catchers, or sheriff's officers, who could usually be relied upon to resent the drop of black blood that tainted them, and, with the zeal of the proselyte, to visit their hatred of it upon the unfortunate blacks that fell into their hands. One curse of Negro slavery was, and one part of its baleful heritage is, 
that it poisoned the fountains of human sympathy. Under a system where men might sell their own children without social reprobation or loss of prestige, it was not surprising that some of them should hate their distant cousins. There were not in Patesville half a dozen persons capable of thinking Judge Strait's thoughts upon the question before him, and perhaps not another would have adopted the course he now pursued toward this anomalous family in the house behind the cedars. "'Well, here we are again, as the clown in the circus remarks,' murmured the judge. Ten years ago, in a moment of sentimental weakness and of quixotic loyalty to the memory of an old friend, who, by the way, had not cared enough for his own children to take them away from the South, as he might have done, or to provide for them handsomely, as he perhaps meant to do, I violated the traditions of my class and stepped from the beaten path to help the misbegotten son of my old friend out of the slough of despond in which he had learned, in some strange way, that he was floundering. Ten years later the ghost of my good deed returns to haunt me, and makes me doubt whether I have wrought more evil than good. I wonder, he mused, if he will find her out. The judge was a man of imagination. He had read many books and had personally outlived some prejudices. He let his mind run on the various phases of the situation. If he found her out, would he by any possibility marry her? It is not likely, he answered himself. If he made the discovery here, the facts would probably leak out in the town. It is something that a man might do in secret, but only a hero or a fool would do openly. The judge sighed as he contemplated another possibility. He had lived for seventy years under the old regime. The young man was a gentleman. So had been the girl's father. Conditions were changed, but human nature was the same. Would the young man's love turn to disgust and repulsion, or would it merely sink from the level of worship to that of desire? Would the girl, denied marriage, accept anything less? Her mother had, but conditions were changed. Yes, conditions were changed, so far as the girl was concerned. There was a possible future for her under the new order of things, but white people had not changed their opinion of the Negroes, except for the worse. The general belief was that they were just as inferior as before, and had, moreover, been spoiled by a disgusting assumption of equality driven into their thick skulls by Yankee malignity bent upon humiliating a proud though vanquished foe. If the judge had had sons and daughters of his own, he might not have done what he now proceeded to do. But the old man's attitude toward society was chiefly that of an observer, and the narrow stream of sentiment left in his heart chose to flow toward the weaker party in this unequal conflict, a young woman fighting for love and opportunity against the ranked forces of society, against immemorial tradition, against pride of family and of race. "'It may be the unwisest thing I ever did,' he said to himself, turning to his desk and taking up a quill-pen, "'and may result in more harm than good. "'But I was always from childhood in sympathy with the underdog. "'There is certainly as much reason in my helping the girl as the boy, "'for being a woman she is less able to help herself.' "'He dipped his pen into the ink and wrote the following lines. "'Madam, if you value your daughter's happiness, "'keep her at home for the next day or two. "'This note he dried by sprinkling it, with sand from a box near at hand, signed with his own name, and, 
with a fine courtesy, addressed to Mrs. Molly Walden. Having first carefully sealed it in an envelope, he stepped to the open door and spied, playing marbles on the street nearby, a group of negro boys, one of whom the judge called by name. "'Here, Billy,' he said, handing the boy the note. "'Take this to Miss Molly Walden. Do you know where she lives? Down on Front Street, in the house behind the cedars?' "'Yes, sir. I knows the place.' "'Make haste now. When you come back and tell me what she says, I'll give you ten cents. On second thoughts, I shall be gone to lunch, so here's your money,' he added, handing the lad the bit of soiled paper by which the United States government acknowledged its indebtedness to the bearer in the sum of ten cents. Just here, however, the judge made his mistake. Very few mortals can spare the spring of hope, the motive force of expectation. The boy kept the note in his hand, winked at his companions, who had gathered as near as their awe of the judge would permit, and started down the street. As soon as the judge had disappeared, Billy beckoned to his friends, who speedily overtook him. When the party turned the corner of Front Street, and were safely out of sight of Judge Strait's office, the capitalist entered the grocery store and invested his unearned increment in gingerbread. When the ensuing Saturnalia was over, Billy finished the game of marbles which the judge had interrupted, and then set out to execute his commission. He had nearly reached his objective point when he met upon the street a young white lady whom he did not know, and for whom, the path being narrow at that point, he stepped out into the gutter. He reached the house behind the cedars, went round to the back door, and handed the envelope to Miss Molly, who was seated on the rear piazza, propped up by pillows in a comfortable rocking chair. "'Law's a massy!' she exclaimed weakly. "'What is it?' "'It's a letter, ma'am,' answered the boy, whose expanding nostrils had caught a pleasant odour from the kitchen, and who was therefore in no hurry to go away. "'Who's it for?' she asked. "'It's for you, ma'am,' replied the lad. "'And who's it from?' she inquired, turning the envelope over and over, and examining it with the impotent curiosity of one who cannot read. "'From old Judge Stray, ma'am. He told me to fetch it to you. Is you got a roasted tater you could give me, ma'am?' "'Surely, child. I'll have Aunt Zephy fetch you a piece of tater pone if you'll hold on a minute.' She called to Aunt Zilphy, who soon came hobbling out of the kitchen with a large square of the delicacy, a flat cake made of mashed sweet potatoes, mixed with beaten eggs, sweetened and flavored to suit the taste, and baked in a Dutch oven upon the open hearth. The boy took the gratuity, thanked her, and turned to go. Miss Molly was still scanning the superscription of the letter. "'I wonder,' she murmured, "'what old Judge Strait can be writing to me about.' "'Oh, boy!' "'Yes, am answered the messenger, looking back. "'Can you read writing?' "'No, ma'am.' "'All right, never mind.' She laid the letter carefully on the chimney-piece of the kitchen. I reckon it's something more about the taxes, she thought. Or maybe somebody wants to buy one of my lots. Rena'll be back directly, and she can read it and find out. I'm glad my children have been to school. They never could have got where they are now if they hadn't. End of section 13. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.